Would you open your Bible with me, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. And um, one of my uh, favorite things is uh, listening to and watching people who do really good impersonations. And uh, I, when I was in seminary, I worked with a guy who could do really good impersonations, and he could take just about anybody and flip it over, and, and it was pretty funny. And, and part of what makes an impersonation so good and what makes it so funny is not just the words that come out of the person's mouth or the tone of voice that, that we've grown used to. Part of what makes it so funny is that uh, the impersonation is just blown up by like a thousand times. It's just exaggerated totally, Right. And so it's not just the words that come out of the mouth, but it's the body language, it's the facial expressions, it's the hand gestures, it's the turns of phrase, it's the words that the people use that we've become accustomed to, and and you put that whole package together and then you just totally exaggerate it, and it can actually be pretty funny to sit there and watch that and listen to that. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are all imitators. Every single one of us in the room, whether we realize it or not, we imitate someone or something. There is an influence in our life that causes us to do the things that we end up doing, to live the way that we live, to think the way that we think, to speak the way that we speak. And it really begins from some of the earliest days of our lives. Boys and girls grow up and want to be their moms or their dads, and, and kids grow up and want to be their favorite athletes, and even into adulthood, sometimes we kind of want to be like the people that we read about in books or that we see on TV. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says here that as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we are to imitate as well. It's no different for us. In fact, as we've been going through our series in Ephesians, we came to chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, and and Paul now is taking us down this path of helping us understand what it means for us to live in relationship with one another, to live from the place of our identity in Jesus Christ, where, where God has done all of these things to save us and give us this brand new identity in Christ, and this now is how that is supposed to impact the way that you live. And in chapter 4, he began unpacking what this means for us in our relationships with one another. And as we get now to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that when it comes to your relationships with each other, when it comes to living life with each other, we are to imitate God. Now let that sink in. As followers of Jesus, we are to imitate God. God. I don't know how that strikes you. Uh, I'm sure there's a segment in the room right now, and, and your thought is, yeah, you know what? That's my life. That's what I've given my life to. Like the day that Jesus saved me and made me new, that's what I've been giving my life to do. I want to live my life for the glory of God. I want to do everything that I possibly can in the way that I think, the way that I speak, the things that I look at, the things that I do. I want my life to reflect who God is and what God has done to save me. I want to imitate God within my life. And I know that my imitation of God is not perfect and it's never going to be perfect until that day that God takes me home to be with him, at which point he will perfect me. And some of you are like, yes, that's my life, that's me. There's another segment, I'm sure, in the room right now, and you're like, you know what? Imitate God? Like, this is kind of where I tap out. Like, this is where I pull back and and I walk away because I can't do that in my life. Like, do you know my life? 
Do you know what I've been through? Do you know what this last week has even been like for me? Do you know that my marriage has grown cold and my kids have walked away and, and I'm in a job that I don't like and I'm not sure I'm going to get through school and, and I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure how all of this is going to come together and now you throw this into the mix and you want me to imitate God? We get a little bit intimidated by that and I'm sure there's other segments in the room right now and we're somewhere in between those two extremes but it's really important for us to understand that that when Paul says here at the start of Ephesians 5 that we are to imitate God it's not actually a new concept that Paul brings up it's not the first time that this has shown up in the Bible in fact it goes all the way back to the Old Testament God had repeatedly called his people to imitate him to live their life for him and then it's something that Jesus would pick up again in the gospels notice this Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect what's he saying Imitate God. Peter would pick up on this as well in one of his letters. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's he saying there? Imitate God. Peter picks, up it, picks it up one more time again in chapter 2, and he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's he saying here? Imitate God. And so now, Paul says it again here in Ephesians chapter 5, which carried just as much weight for the Christians in Ephesus and in that surrounding area as it does for us here today. Keep in mind that Ephesus and that entire region was a very sinful place. It was drowning in its own immorality. At every turn, people would look around and all they would see around them was sin. They were just drowning in their immorality. People were living for their own selfish desires. They, they were living lives that were given over to the worshiping of the false gods of sex, money, power, and influence. And isn't it true that Paul could have taken that letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus and in that area and he could have just mailed it straight to us? Because that kind of describes our culture as well, doesn't it? We live in a culture that's drowning in immorality at every turn. People living for their own selfish desires. Lives given over to the worshiping of the false gods of sex, money, power, and influence. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of this church in Ephesus that's drowning in all of this around them, and in the midst of a church in Brantford that's drowning in the midst of all of this around us, he says to us, in the midst of that culture, Imitate God. Be different and imitate God. In some very real sense, this is the heartbeat of discipleship. This is the heartbeat of what it means for us to lay down our life and to pick up our cross daily and follow after Jesus. That, that in the midst of a world that lives to satisfy itself, that when it comes to our relationships with each other, when it comes to us living life with one another in the context of our own relationships, he says you are to imitate God. Just think about that for a minute. Our culture spends so much money in things like relationship therapy. Like we have counseling for all kinds of things, right? You got something wrong, there's counseling for that. And the tragic reality of sin is that relationships will continue to be broken. Relationships do break down. But the Bible tells us right here in this passage that the single most foundational building block to healthy relationships with one another, 
whether it's at home, at church, with your family, at school, at work, no matter where it is that God takes you, the single most foundational building block to healthy relationships with one another is to imitate God. So, how do you do that? And that's the question that Paul answers here as we begin to make our way through Ephesians chapter 5. Lord willing, we're going to break this up into three parts over the next few weeks. And you'll see here that Paul gives at least three answers to how we imitate God in the context of our relationships with one another. The first answer he gives is to say, walk in love. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the next part of the passage where it says, walk in the light. And then the week after that, again, Lord willing, we're going to look at the section that says, Walk in Wisdom. We'll look at each one of these over the next few weeks, but the title of today's message is simply this, Walk in Love. So let's look together at God's Word. Follow along in your copy of the Bible as I begin reading Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Father, we um, again humble ourselves before you and ask, would you please continue to lead us through this time now as we Look into your word. I pray, Spirit of God, would you help us not simply to understand what your word says, but Would you also, in your grace, help us to rightly apply what we understand? So, Father, would you lead us through this time? Lord, I humble myself before you and realize that I have no ability on my own. Lord, I I am not wise enough to convince anyone. I am not strong enough to change anyone's heart or change their mind. Lord, only you can do this work, and only you can do this work in me as well. And so, as we have your word open now before us, would you please lead us? Would you please guide us? Would you please bring about the miracle of sanctification among us? Lord, would you bring about the miracle of conversion for those who are here right now and do not know Christ as Savior? Lord, we give you this time and pray that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes to my relationships with other people, how do I know that I'm walking in love. I want you to see here uh, three ways that we can know that we're walking in love. Here's the first. You may want to write this down. I know I'm walking in love when my love for others is grounded in God's love for me. I know that I'm walking in love when my love for others is grounded in God's love for me. Now, think about this for a minute. There is so much freedom to live for God and to put yourself out there for other people to love them when your relationships are shaped by how God loves you. Because when your relationships are shaped by how God loves you, you are not thinking about you. You're thinking about God. 
You're thinking about how God has loved you and how God loves you even right now. So how is it that God has loved you? Well, take a look back uh, to chapter 4 and verse 32 that we looked at last week just by way of giving us some context as to where we are here again this morning. Chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then there's this seamless transition into chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of the way that God has loved you. Now, what does that kind of love mean? Well, it means, first of all, this, that we are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ. Notice verse 1 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, I I read that and I think back to the time when our kids were a little bit younger And um, maybe moms, some of you, maybe you experienced this on Mother's Day last weekend if you have younger kids at home and and just how much your kids adore you when they're so young, right? When they're so innocent and and they just love you and they want to imitate you and and they want to dress like you do, they want to walk like you do, they want to talk like you do, they want to throw a ball like you do, they want to do everything like you do and and they say things like, when I grow up, I want to be like my mom or I want to be like my dad. And and what they're saying is that they want to give their life to being just like you. And it's such a childlike innocence about that. And part of the call of this passage here in Ephesians 5 is for us now as followers of Jesus, for us to return to that childlike innocence and to imitate our Heavenly Father, whom we love, and to say, I want my life to be just like him. In other words, we are beloved children of our Heavenly Father because of the finished work of Jesus in our place. So that no matter what may happen to us, we live in that security that we are beloved children of God. See, that's where your identity is. That's who you are. And that's where you need to begin. And because there's nothing that can change the status of our identity in Christ, we then can be kind to one another. We can be tender-hearted. We can forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us because when we do, we're like that little child that imitates his heavenly father. We're beloved children. We're imitating God in the way that we live our lives. So notice this. Not only is this love secure in Christ, but it also sacrifices for others. Verse 2, he goes on and says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is a profound statement that Paul makes here. He starts with, walk in love. The idea of walking, of course, goes back to chapter 4 and verse 1, where where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And and of course, when we walk, we're just basically putting one step, one foot in front of the other, right? It's the, the idea of forward progress. And so when we read about walking in the Bible, it's a metaphor for how we live in our relationship uh, with God, we keep putting one foot in front of the other, walking in obedience to the Lord. But, but he says here, walk in love. And then he tells us what it means to walk in love. He says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a sacrificial love. So it's not just an affection that we have for other people, though it includes that. But it's the kind of affection that proves itself by doing all that is within your ability to put the highest good of the other person ahead of your own desire. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. Putting the highest good of the people around you ahead of your own desires. Our love, in other words, for one another is rooted in the gospel love that Christ has for us. 
That even though you and I were living a life that was walking away from Jesus, and we were loving ourselves and not loving others, and certainly not loving God, certainly not looking for God, and knowing that it was my sin and your sin that put Jesus on the cross, and yet he went to the cross anyway. Isaiah says that Jesus was like a lamb being led to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. Just think about that. He opened not his mouth. Now put that into the context of the relationships that we have with one another. That when we get mistreated, when, when, we, when something happens to us that we, we don't think should have happened to us, what do we do? Almost instantly we start opening our mouth, right? We start making excuses. We start coming up with reasons why we're justified to act the way that we do or why that never should have happened to us. And, and we open our mouth with all of these excuses. And yet Isaiah says, because of the love that Jesus had for us, Jesus, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he went to the cross and he opened not his mouth. I mean, if there was anyone on the face of the planet who had a reason to open his mouth with justifiable reasons for why he should not be where he is, it was Jesus. And yet he opens not his mouth. Why? Because that is the pure and the perfect love of God for us. That's the love of God for you and me that intentionally seeks the highest good of the other person. And so now the Bible says in Ephesians 5, as children of God, as followers of Jesus, we walk in that kind of love for one another. It's a sacrificial love. So husbands and wives, put the highest good of your spouse ahead of your own desires. Brothers, sisters, siblings, put the highest good of the others ahead of your own desires. And some of you are like, man, that's going to take a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in our house to make that happen. But, but it's all grace, right? That's why God gives us his grace, to make that kind of thing happen. And so siblings, put the highest good of the others ahead of your own desires. Church family, let's work hard at putting the highest good of each other ahead of our own desires. So he says, secure in Christ, sacrificing for others. And then he says this, it's satisfying to God. The end of verse 2, he says that this love is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This picture of a fragrant offering and sacrifice, of course, goes back to the Old Testament. And the people would give five offerings to God. And all of these, uh, we know, are pointing forward and being perfectly fulfilled in Jesus himself, in the sacrifice that he made. And, and the first offering that they gave was called the burnt offering. And this was a picture of the total devotion of Jesus to doing the will of the Father. So just imagine people in the Old Testament, they, they bring the animal, they lay it down on the altar, and then they set it on fire, and it's completely and totally consumed by the fire as a sacrifice to God. And that's the picture here with Jesus, a life completely and totally consumed with devotion to God being given completely to him. The second was the meal offering, and that was a picture of the perfection of Jesus. The third was the peace offering, and this was meant to show that Jesus is the only one who can truly bring peace between a holy God and sinful man. And the thing is, about these first three offerings, God was very pleased with these things. As these sacrifices were made by the people, God was very pleased to receive these sacrifices from the people. But when it came to these last two sacrifices, God despised them. Because these last two sacrifices represented something very specific. The fourth and fifth sacrifices were the sin offering and the trespass offering. And God despised both of those sacrifices because they represented Christ bearing all of our sin. So think for a minute, Jesus dying on the cross. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
and God turns away because he cannot be in the presence of sin. Now, of course, all of this, after Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again from the dead, and, and his resurrection, we know, is a validation from the Father that the Father is pleased with the offering that Jesus has made. And so now, God looks upon all of that. He looks upon all of those five sacrifices together. He looks upon the death of Christ and his resurrection, and he is pleased with the fullness of Christ's offering, and it has become a fragrant offering to him. And so now, Paul is saying to us here that when we love each other in the sacrificial way that Jesus has loved us, God delights in that. God is satisfied in that. So when he sees us laying down our preferences for the sake of our unity, when he sees us putting off bitterness and wrath and anger and gossip and, and all the things that we looked at last week at the end of chapter 4, and when we put off the things that stink, so to speak, so that we can put on the things that are sweet, that is satisfying to God because that is a love for one another that is grounded in God's love for us. It's grounded in gospel love for us. You see this? I know that I'm walking in love when my love for others is grounded in God's love for me. Now we come to verse 3 and Paul turns a pretty sharp corner here to tell us this next. Number 2, I know I'm walking in love when I'm avoiding all forms of counterfeit love. So what he's described for us in these first two verses, that's true love. That's real love. But what he's about to unpack for us now in these next couple of verses is counterfeit love. He says, I know I'm walking in love when I'm avoiding all the forms of counterfeit love. Now, just a warning here that the Bible's about to hit us in the area of two of the biggest idols that there are. Look with me at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There it is. Did you see it? Two of the biggest idols in Paul's day, two of the biggest idols in our day today, sex and money. Paul nails them both right here in this verse. And the reason that this is so important right here, the reason that Paul draws our attention toward this is because these are the kinds of things that can totally devastate our relationships with one another if we take either of these things outside of the boundaries that God has given us in his word can totally devastate our relationships. And so the Bible says to avoid all forms of counterfeit love, first of all, because it's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God. That phrase, sexual immorality, in verse 3, it's where we get our English word pornography. It refers to every kind of sexual sin that there is. And then he says, all impurity. That word is more of a general term, and, and that word shows up a total of 10 times across the New Testament. But what's interesting is that every time that that word is used, it refers to sexual sin. It's counterfeit love. It's fake love. And the command here is to take radical measures to avoid those things in your life, to avoid those things in our relationships. So just think about this for a minute. Just think about this on a personal level for you. What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of TV shows do you watch? What kind of internet sites do you look for? What would your Google search history reveal? 
Like, what are the things that you're allowing into your mind? When, what, what, are your, what are your eyes and your mind and your heart lingering on when you're scrolling through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and, and not to mention the so many other apps? Like, what is your heart lingering on? What is your heart looking to be satisfied in as you're working through those things? Jesus said this in Matthew 23 up on the screen for you. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Here's the thing. Back in the day, people would go to great lengths to make the outside of the tomb look absolutely amazing. Like they would spend money upon money upon money, just spend a lot of money making the outside of the grave look as extravagant as they could possibly get it. All the while, the inside of the grave, of course, is just death. It's death everywhere. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's a parable, that's a picture of what your life is like. Like you can, just think about this. Think about how this applies to us. You can do everything that you possibly can to hide stuff like this, to hide addictions like this, to hide behavior like this. You can do everything that you possibly can to hide this from your accountability partner, to hide this from your spouse, to hide this from your kids, to hide this from people that you respect. You can get the best of the best of the accountability software on all of your devices. You can do everything that you possibly can to hide this, but at the end of the day, you will not hide this from God. And on some level, that should absolutely terrify us. Why? Because God despises sexual sin. Read Proverbs 6 and 7. So over and over, it talks about that's the way to death. There's nothing good that will come out of that. That is the way to death. Think back to Numbers 25. The Israelite men entered into relationships with the Moabite women, something that God had expressly forbidden because God knew. God knew that if those men entered into a relationship with those Moabite women, that the hearts of those men would be led astray by those women. And that's exactly what happened. And in an act of judgment, God slaughtered 24,000 of the Israelite men on the battlefield. He despises sexual sin. Everybody look up here for a minute. Just for a second, just look up here. I need you to track with me, okay? I need you to keep hanging on with me, okay? Because grace is coming. Okay, so just follow me through this, all right? So he hits us here with the first idol of sex. But then he also hits us with the second idol of money. He calls it covetousness. It's greed. And and you'll notice down at the end of verse 5, he says that that covetousness is idolatry. So understand, when he says that covetousness is idolatry, it's not just the desire to get and keep. Okay, It's not just the desire to get and keep. It is the desire to hope and trust. Covetousness is the heart that says, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. Covetousness is the heart that says, I need more money. I need a bigger house. I need a nicer car. I need a longer retirement. Covetousness is the heart that says, I need those clothes because those clothes are going to make me feel better. Covetousness is the heart that says, I need those people to think a certain thing about me. I need that group of people to know what I'm able to accomplish. I need, I need, I need, I need. Covetousness 
And the heart that repeatedly says, I need, I need, I need, is a heart that will hardly ever give. The heart that keeps saying, I need, I need, I need, is a heart that will never be generous. Because a heart that keeps saying, I need, I need, I need, is a heart that has wrapped your entire identity around what you possess. The heart that keeps saying, I need, I need, I need, is the heart that has wrapped your entire security around the things that you can hold on to in this life. It's covetousness. He says it's idolatry because those things have not only become your trust in the present, but those things have also become your hope for the future. And that's what makes it an idol. Because your trust in the present and your hope for the future are not in the living God. So he says, when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to all impurity, when it comes to covetousness, he says here, it can't even be named. It can't even be named among you because it's not proper among saints. Now, notice what he just did there. He just flipped us right back to who we are. Just flipped us right back to our identity. He says, it's not proper among saints. That's who you are. And because that's who you are, there should be a very distinct way that you begin to live. That's different from the world. So notice this. Everything that we do flows out of an understanding of who we are. The way that you live your life will flow out of your understanding of who you are. And so if you're here this morning and you're saved in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that you are a blood-bought, chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed child of the living God. That's who you are. And so because that's who you are, there is now a very distinct way that you need to live. That's what he's saying. You need to see that everything that we do flows out of our understanding of who we are. And if we don't understand who we are, then we're not going to live the way that we're supposed to live. All right. I promised you grace. Here it comes. The good news of the gospel is that the story does not end in judgment. The good news of the gospel is that it ends in deliverance for those who will turn to Christ in faith. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He's actually talking there about the very same things that he's talking about here in Ephesians 5. So if you're here this morning and you struggle with these things that we've been talking about, for those who struggle with sexual immorality, those who struggle with impurity, those who struggle with covetousness, greed, idolatry of any and any kind, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to what he says next. Some of you were once like that. Meaning you're not anymore. And then he says, but you were cleansed. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So notice what this is saying right here, okay? 
What this is saying is that whether you struggle with sexual immorality, you struggle with impurity, you struggle with covetousness or greed or idolatry or of any and every kind, it doesn't really matter what the sin is. And, and I don't know if I'm, I'm speaking to somebody specific this morning in some sense. This is for all of us right now. But it could be that I'm speaking to someone very specifically, very personally, right now in this moment. If you struggle with any of these sins, any sin that we struggle with, the message of the gospel is that the grace of God is greater than every sin. The grace of God is strong enough and powerful enough to break the bondage of the addiction. The grace of God is strong enough and powerful enough to rescue you from that life so that you can live in your identity in Jesus Christ. So he says here, I know that I'm walking in love when I'm avoiding all forms of counterfeit love because it's not pleasing to God. But then notice this also, because it has no place among God's people. It has no place among God's people. Verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness. In other words, uh, no words that are meant to be degrading or disgracing, nor foolish talk. That word for foolish talk is where we get our English word moron, just in case you're wondering. But it helps you understand what he's saying, right? Like, it's the kind of talk that comes from someone who's just not thinking straight. He says, nor crude joking. In other words, taking something innocent and making it obscene. He says, these are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, this is really powerful because the Bible has a lot to say about the words that come out of our mouth. The book of James says that the words that we speak, have the ability either to build people up or to break people down. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the overflow of your heart, your what? Your mouth speaks, right? Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So eventually, whatever it is that's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. There's just no getting around that. So let me ask you, what's your mouth saying about your heart? What's your mouth saying about your heart? Because that's what Paul's going after here. Filthiness and foolishness and crudeness are not just matters of the mouth. They're really matters of the heart. And in the same way, thanksgiving is not just a matter of our mouth. It's actually a matter of our heart. In fact, the way that we leave those things behind, the way that we leave foolishness and filthiness and crude joking behind is to be intentionally thankful for all that the Lord has given us. So let's take this just one step farther. Let's apply this deeper down into our hearts right now and think about this. When we speak filthiness or foolishness or crudeness about the relationships that we are in, we are devaluing and degrading the relationships that God has given us in his grace. When you hear crude jokes about marriage, about dating, about whatever, about any kind of relationship, we are devaluing and degrading something good that God has given to us in his grace. Someone says, well, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the kind of relationships that I've had and how difficult it's been for me and the wounds that, that I bear, the scars that are on me right now because of the relationships that I've been in. And, and I'm actually doing pretty well to not say more than what I've already said. And, and you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how hard it's been. But what I do know is this. The Bible calls us to be imitators of God. To walk in love. 
Because the reality is that for every single one of us, there was a time when you and I were walking away from God. Right? There was a time where, where you and I were intentionally taking steps farther and farther and farther away from God. There were times where we were saying things about God that were not good, that were not pleasing to him, that were not glorifying to him. There was a time when, when we just kept walking farther and farther away. And in his grace, God came to us. And God opened our eyes and God gave us the ability to see the glory of who Jesus is, that our life could be changed by the power of the gospel. And he saved us. And so because of that, the Bible now calls us to imitate God. The Bible calls us to walk in love. And what we do know is that when we're committed to walking in love, then we're going to do all that we can to avoid all of these other forms of counterfeit love because they have no place among God's people. And then notice this. I'm avoiding all forms of counterfeit love because it's proof that the heart has not been changed. Verse 5. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, Notice the certainty in that statement. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the person who consistently and unrepentantly goes after this life is showing that their heart has not been changed. They're giving proof that they are not saved, that the kingdom of Christ is not ruling in their life. Because the heart that has been changed will grieve this sin. The heart that has been changed will repent of this sin very quickly. The heart that has been changed will de despise this sin. But at the same time, the heart that has been changed will also pursue righteousness and holiness within their life. So does this mean then that once you give your life to Jesus, that you never struggle with these things anymore? That when it comes to immorality and impurity and covetousness and greed and all forms of idolatry, does it mean that when we give our life to Christ, with the moment that we get saved, that we never deal with all of these things, that we're never tempted by any of these things anymore? And of course the answer is, no, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that the grace of God has become the overriding influence within your life. The grace of God has become the most powerful influence within your life so that when we go down into the valley of that sin, we quickly come back and we quickly repent and we quickly confess of that sin. We quickly make things right with God. And the reality that the grace of God is the overriding presence within our life means then that when we do go down into the valley of that sin, that those times are much fewer and farther between. That there's grace for us there but we walk away from that. The grace is what strengthens us to walk away from those things, to live in light of our new identity. I want to be careful here because it can be really easy for us to cross the bridge to nowhere and think that if you're going to overcome all of these things within your life, then you need to do this and you need to do that. And that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus died for all of our sexual immorality. Jesus died for all of our impurity. Jesus died for all of our covetousness. Jesus died for all of our idolatry. Jesus died for all of our filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. All of those sins were nailed to the cross. 
And when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated every single one of those sins and he took his rightful place to rule and reign with the Father. Now what Paul tells us back all the way in chapter 1 is that we now share in that victory with Christ. And the victory of Christ becomes our strength to overcome all of those things. Our sharing in the victory of Christ is what gives us the ability to walk away from those things. To walk away from that life so we can walk toward holiness and purity and righteousness. See, that's why we need to live in light of our identity. That's why it's so important for us to simply know who we are. So that we can live the kind of life that we have been saved to live. Listen, you're not going to overcome sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness by trying harder or doing better. You're going to overcome those things by trusting in Jesus who defeated those things for you. We share in his victory. Only Jesus, listen, only Jesus can change your heart. And our heart is what most desperately needs to be changed. One final point. Number three, I know I'm walking in love when I'm trusting God's word to guide my relationships. Verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So notice this. I'm trusting God's word to guide my relationships, first of all, because deception is everywhere. Deception is everywhere. I'm I'm just going to put this on the table. As Christians, one of the greatest needs that we have, as, as believers, as followers of Jesus, One of the greatest needs that we have, we have a lot of needs, but one of the greatest needs that we have is to know the Word of God. Like, to know the Word of God. Like, I'm not just talking about reading the Bible for a few minutes in the morning or listening to your audio Bible on your device. Those are good things, nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying that one of the greatest needs that we have as Christians is to know the Word of God, to hide the Word of God within our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. Because if you don't know the truth, then you will not know when you're being deceived. Paul says here, let no one deceive you with empty words. Picture that comes to my mind here is Eve in the garden. Satan just kind of slithers in, curls up nice and close right beside her and, and throws her a, a few half-truths and then throws in, did God really say? And before you know it, Eve's gone. Adam's gone. They're gone in sin. And now, because of that, we are gone in sin as well. And now we live in a world that deceives with empty words. In other words, people will try to convince you that everything that we've just talked about in this passage, people will try to convince you that everything here in this passage is acceptable, that it's okay, that it's tolerated, and that if God is the loving God like he truly says that he is, then there is no way that he would exclude anyone from his kingdom who does not confess and repent of these things. That they're okay just the way that they are. That they can get into the kingdom of God just fine the way that they are. And not only that, but will also tell you that if you believe anything different than that, then you're being intolerant. And there you have it. In 10 seconds, we just described our nation. Just described the culture that we live in. To make matters catastrophically worse, there are churches who not only endorse but actually preach the opposite of this very passage. 
sexually immoral. It's okay. Impure. It's fine. Covetousness. Greed. Idolatry. Like, we're not super comfortable calling it that, but we're okay with whatever you choose to do, and, and you can keep that because we just want everybody to be happy. We want everyone to be okay. Let's all just hug, and, and we'll all just get along, and everything will just find the way that it is, and you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And Is it really any wonder that we have so many people across our land who are so spiritually confused? Which really leads us then to the million-dollar question. When the word of man is not the same as the word of God, whose word will you trust? When the word of man is not the same as the word of God, whose word will you trust? That's part of what he's getting at here because the word of man, apart from the word of God, is empty. Let no one deceive you with empty words. But the word of God, spoken by the person of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, For the glory of the Son of God, that is what brings life and joy and peace. Loved ones, listen so carefully. If you don't know the truth, then you will not know when you are being deceived. Not only is deception everywhere, but notice this, destruction awaits the unrepentant. So see what he's saying here and see how tragic this is. People are lost in lives of sexual sin and uncontrollable greed, but they're being told that it's okay and that there's nothing wrong with that, and yet it's because of those very sins that God's wrath is coming upon them. Like, that's awful in every possible way. So may God's word guide us to see the reality of these things, to feel the reality of these things, and that the reality of God's wrath upon sin would cause us to double down on our efforts to pray for these people, to evangelize these people, to imitate the true love of God in Christ for these people. Like May God help us to see this for what it really is, that the culture can call it whatever it wants. Culture can call it this, they can call it that, but God leaves us no room at all to redefine sin. He leaves us no room to justify our sin for the sake of our pleasure. But instead, by his good pleasure, he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could know what true love actually is. Like that is an amazing God that is worthy to be imitated in every possible way. So I know that I'm walking in love when I'm trusting God, trusting God's word to guide my relationships because deception is everywhere and destruction awaits the unrepentant. And then finally this. So I'll trust him for discernment now. Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He's not saying here, avoid all contact with them. He's saying, don't join them in their sin. Don't join them in their sin because that's not walking in love. The loving thing to do is not to join sinners in their sin. The loving thing to do The most loving thing you could do is to tell them that there is a greater love. That for all the things that they have been using and using and using to try and fill the void in their life, there's actually only one who is truly able to fill that void, and his name is Jesus. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love.